Thanks for the whoops. <laughs> uh, as you said, my name is John McCormick. I am the leader of Renovation U. Uh, morning to you guys this morning. Thanks to Pastor David for the introduction. Thanks to you guys for having me here today. Uh, many of you have had me in Renovation U over the years. So you've seen me as a teacher, but this is my first time getting to speak up in front of the whole church and a uh, bit of a different experience, but it's good. So I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. And as my students know, for the next 90 minutes, we're going to I hear the, the, the nervous chuckles because they know I would do that. No, it's only 85 minutes this morning. It's fine. So I want to start off by asking you guys a question. We're going to have a little interaction. It's first service, but we can do this. What's the root of all evil? What do you think it is? Shout it out to me. Yeah, love of money, pride. Yeah, it's good. Love of money is probably the most common known answer to that. And that actually comes out of the Bible. Bet you didn't know that. It comes out of 1 Timothy 6.10. I want to put that up on the screen so you guys can see it. It says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now what's interesting, and what I want to highlight, is actually there's two words in that sentence that are really important. There's the the words a and kinds. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The Apostle Paul is not telling us here that the love of money is the root of all evil. It is bad. It's a root of many evils, but it's not the root of all evil. So this morning I want to figure out with you guys, what is the root of all evil? Where does it come from? And to do that, we have to go back to the very first two humans that ever lived, right back to the very beginning of the Bible. We're going to Genesis 3 this morning. I'd love for you guys to read along with me. There's a Bible under every chair. It's page 2. can only go one page sooner than that. Or you can follow along in the Renovation Church app. Just tap on Bible and weekly verses. We're going to read together just starting right at verse 1. Let's read that. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is not a happy story in the Bible by any stretch of the mind. Adam and Eve are living in paradise with God. God is walking and talking with them every day. Imagine how amazing that would be if you got to see God every day walking and talking to you personally. That'd be so cool. And he gives them four billion things that they can go do. They can eat from the trees. They can talk to the animals. They can do all this kind of stuff. But only one thing... He says, you cannot do. It's not too hard to follow, right? A bunch of stuff to do and one not to do. It seems pretty easy. But then this snake shows up, starts talking to Eve, and Adam and Eve, for some reason, choose to disobey God. But why? Why would you ignore God's commands? They certainly didn't need anything. The Garden of Eden provided everything they could possibly imagine. It had food, safety, protection. It had God's presence with them. They they didn't have to do anything to eat or anything. There was no work. It was an amazing paradise. But Satan, in the form of a serpent, shows up, and he gives them this powerful temptation. He proposes to them that they could be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, Eve has everything that she could possibly need. But Satan introduces this fear that she might be missing out on something. She doesn't want to miss out. You know, we're the same way. How often in our own lives do we fear we're missing out, too? Imagine you see a friend posting on Facebook that they went out with their other friends and they didn't invite you, and you feel left out. And if that happens a couple times, you begin to fear that you're being left out all the time. You're always afraid of being missing out. But what's crazy, and what we don't see, and what Adam and Eve don't see, is that when you have God, when God is with you, when you have his presence, when he's talking with you, 
you don't need anything. You're not missing out on anything because God is with you and he's providing for you everything that you need. But they don't see that in this moment. They lose sight of that. And Satan, he's very clever in the way he twists the words and gets Eve to think things that she may have not necessarily believed. But he twists it and he says, God is depriving them of something good. That's the temptation he's introducing. They're being deprived of knowing what good and evil is. Satan makes that seem like it's a really good thing that they have to have and they're missing out when they don't. And really he's planting the question, is God not good because he's withholding things from me? Or better yet, could I do better if I was God? Very serious questions. And very, very arrogant. But Adam and Eve, they give in to that temptation. That they could do better than God. That God was wrong about what he told them. They declare to him, we know best. You don't know what you're doing. I'm going to eat the fruit. I want to know what good and evil is. They tell the almighty God that created them. Think about this. That created them that he doesn't know what he's talking about. The same God who created the sun, moon, and the stars a few days before. Who created atoms and subatomic particles. And I'm sure particles underneath that that we don't even know of yet. All this intricacy. The same God who literally walked and talked with them in the garden. Who showed nothing but love and goodness to them. That's who Adam and Eve ignore when they eat that fruit. Not some God who's up in heaven, who's far away, who's impersonal. A God who's personal and with them and talking to them every day and telling them that he loves them over and over and over again and providing for them. That's the pride that they do when they eat. That's the pride they give into when they eat that fruit. Now, when I say pride this morning, I'm going to say pride a lot. When I say that, I don't mean when you're proud of your, your child because they did something great or you're proud of a friend because they accomplished something. That's good pride. That's not bad. What I'm talking about is the pride where we say to God, we know better. I am great. I am awesome. I don't care what God says. I am the best. That's the kind of pride I'm talking about. And that's the pride that Adam and Eve are showing here. And immediately after they show this pride and they disobey, Adam and Eve know they're naked and they're ashamed. Before that, they were naked and having a great time. It didn't matter because it was good. God created them good. But when they sin, they realize they're naked and they're ashamed of it. And so they go and they sew fig leaves together and make clothes, and then they hide in the bushes, which was actually surprisingly good camouflage for them. They thought to put on leaves and then hide in the leaves. And you have to imagine, was God coming up and saying, man, these guys are really good at hide and seek. Where are they? Of course not. He's God. He knows exactly where they are. He goes straight to them and says, what have you done? And then he punishes them. He tells them, because they've sinned against him, that they're cast out. They can't be in his presence. They can't be in the garden with him anymore. They have to leave. And it gets worse because not only are Adam and Eve cursed and the ground is cursed and they're cast out of Eden, but also their children and their children's children and every generation is cast out of Eden. Nobody can go back. God makes it very clear by putting an angel with a flaming sword, which is awesome, by the way, a flaming sword standing at the entrance that no one can enter. And it gets even worse because that same sin that was passed down to their children and their children's children comes down to us. It's been passed down through every generation. Not just one or two, not just ten, but every generation. Now, looking back at Adam and Eve, it's very easy to say, what were you thinking? Why, why would you guys do this? Why would you listen to a snake that started talking to you? Like, that's really strange. Why would you listen to that? Why would you take that snake's advice? But it's our hindsight that lets us see that that was prideful and foolish. That's what gives us the perspective. Let me give you an example from my own life. So, surprisingly to you, I've had pride in my life, like, all the time. And right now my pride is telling me not to tell you this, because it's pride. But I had a time in my life where I was in high school and I was in college, and my father kept telling me I needed to take classes like shop or woodworking or anything to teach me, and I quote, practical skills. That's what I needed to learn in my life. Now, I was a teenager, and therefore I knew everything, right? So I knew what I was doing. And I said, 
I don't really want to do that. That sounds boring. I don't want to take those classes. That's not me. I'm an indoorsman. I don't go outside. That's, that's not my thing. And I thought, you know, maybe I'd make enough money. I could pay somebody to do that, which, by the way, I don't. And perhaps I could just pick up those skills. You know, I'm smart. I'll just, I'll just learn how to, you know, cut things and stuff and have it be right. But I took classes that I thought were more beneficial, like, you know, study hall or geography of the national parks that were really educational for me. They were not. I'm sorry if you love the geography of the national parks. They're great. But for me, that was a really dumb class for me to take. But at the time, the irony of it all is that everything seemed fine. I went through high school. I went through college. I got married. I never needed any of those practical skills. And then we bought a house. Hey, I hear the chuckles. (laughs) We bought a house, and then our yard fell apart, and our fence fell apart, and our house fell apart, and our cars fell apart, and our appliances fell apart. Basically, everything we owned fell apart, and I had no idea what to do. And usually the, the pattern was I'd break things worse, sometimes to the point of no repair, before I ever made it better. And uh, Ashley can verify all this, and she'll tell you all the stories. But let me show you just a few of the things that I've, life practical skills that I've learned as I've gone through. The first one is you have to turn off the light switch and let the light bulb cool down before you take it out, or you will burn your fingers. I promise you I've not done that more than twice. The second thing is, I have to remember what the second thing is. Oh, yeah, you should always measure before you start hanging stuff on the walls and not just take a nail and hit it five or six times into the wall to find the right spot where it's straight and it's where your wife wants it. Uh, I Don't come to my house because you'll see this everywhere. It's really bad. I'm awful at it. I don't know how to measure. You know, speaking of that, when you're cutting a piece of wood, you have to cut straight lines or things get all like weird and stuff. I have some very bizarre contraptions I've created in our house that I, I thought of bringing pictures, but then I was too embarrassed, so I didn't do that. Oh, and by the way, when you're cutting things, that blade is super sharp. Like, really sharp. Don't ask me how I know that. It's really sharp. So be careful with that. Now, I know you're impressed with all the life skills that I've learned. They're very advanced. I know. It's a big deal. But what I quickly learned was that my pride had put me in a really uncomfortable position. I had ignored my father's advice. I had ignored God's advice that he was giving through my father to me by not taking these classes that would have helped me not be in the situation I am today. And my wife and I are still suffering for those decisions. But what's crazy is that I know you're all thinking and judging me right now for the fact that I didn't learn things, but we also judge others. We look back at the Bible and we judge the Israelites for their pride. Think of this. The Israelites are coming out of Egypt. They've been in oppression for a couple hundred years where the Egyptians have treated them horribly. They've been slaves and doing manual labor. God shows up with Moses, makes all these plagues happen, 10 plagues that just destroy the Egyptian nation. He leads them out. He leads them through a sea, splits a sea in half. They walk through and it crushes Pharaoh's army. And then God is taking them to the promised land. And they're out in the wilderness walking towards the promised land. And what do they do? They complain against God. They say, we should have stayed in Egypt so we wouldn't die in this desert. We think of that and we say, what were you thinking? Why would you do that? God was taking you to the promised land. Basically, another Eden where you wouldn't have to fight. You wouldn't have to survive by working hard. The food was there. It flowed with milk and honey, which apparently is all you need in your diet is milk and honey. I didn't know that, but now I'm going to go eat that. It's great. But he goes through this, and we say, you are so dumb, Israel. Why would you do this? But you know what's funny and ironic? Is that you and I make these same mistakes all the time, constantly. Every time we ignore one of God's commands in our life, we're telling him that we know better, and we're doing the same thing. Every single time God calls us to something, and we say, no, God, I don't really want to do that. We're telling God we know better, and we're doing the same thing. Every time we sin at all, we are doing the exact same thing. Every single time. 
The same pride that tempted Adam and Eve to disobey. The same pride that tempted me, that tempted the Israelites. That same pride is the one in us that tells us we would never make those mistakes. We would never screw up like they did. I'm living proof. I screwed up, but in the moment I thought I could never make those problems. I never have those mistakes. But why do we assume that? What makes us think that we know better? It's because we can see the whole story. When you read the Bible about the Israelites and you see them and you see the promises and you see the curses and they go through and they're doing great and then they fall away and you're like, why are you doing that? Don't you know the curses are coming? But we're not there in that moment. Our hindsight is what gives us the perspective to say that was a bad choice. And while our hindsight gives us 20-20 vision, our pride makes us blind. Whether we're looking back, whether we're in the moment, when we say we could do better, our pride is making us blind. And what we'll see And what you'll see in a minute is as we look at the sins, it doesn't matter who does it. It doesn't matter when they did it. It doesn't matter what they did. At the root of all evil, at the root of every single sin, is the same temptation that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. It's the belief that we know better than God. That his rules shouldn't apply to us. We don't want to, we want to put ourselves in the position of authority. We don't want someone to tell us what to do. We want to make the decisions. We want to be God. We don't want someone telling us that what we're doing is wrong. As humans, we hate being told we're wrong. Hate it. Which is why it's hard for us to admit when we're wrong, because we don't like it. In our current culture, the idea of relativity of of, uh, morality, everything's relative. What's true for you is true for you, true for me is true for me. That idea is built on this concept. It's built on this temptation. If truth is relative to each one of us, then it doesn't matter what someone else believes, because what's true for you is true for you. If you do something wrong in someone else's eyes, it doesn't matter because it's right for you. It's this same pride. It's this same temptation trying to get away from consequences, trying to get away from being told we're wrong. We don't like it. We don't like it at all. But at the core, it doesn't matter if it's post-modernity. It doesn't matter if it's this sin. It doesn't matter what it is. At the core of it is the same temptation that God is depriving me of something good by telling me not to do something. Rules are bad. Specifically, a rule that is inconvenient to me at the moment is bad. When it's, when it's someone else doing it, that's a great rule. They should totally stop speeding. But for me, I'm not going to stop speeding. I'm guilty of this. I, don't, I love to speed. It's great. Don't do it. But the rule is inconvenient for me, so in my pride I say that rule is wrong. But when it's somebody else, it's okay because it's, it's not me. Now, I want to make a quick note. Christianity is not about rules. It's not about regulations. It's not about legalism. That's not what it's about. But it's a, it's a part of what we do. God has given us rules. So to clarify that, Pastor David actually gave a message a few weeks ago called The Pull of Legalism. Fantastic message on that topic. I don't have time to go into it, but I encourage you to go back and watch that if you didn't see it. It's very, very good about why Christianity is not just about rules. But we think, you know, if God really loved us, there wouldn't be so many rules, right? Now, as children, and especially teenagers, having been both of those, I can tell you this is true, we hate that our parents keep putting rules on us. We think, my parents don't care what I want. They just keep crimping my style, you know? Word! I'm sorry, I'm not hip anymore. I don't don't know what the the, the slang is. But imagine what we would be like if our our parents hadn't put any rules on us. My parents are sitting in one of these rows, and they're looking at me going, "Uh uh-huh, yep, imagine, it's scary. But as we as parents, if you let your children run loose, if there were no rules and no consequences, that's scary, right? Children are crazy. You let them run free, and they will do anything and everything. But we put rules in place to protect them, to guard them, to keep them safe, to show them how to live. What do you think God's doing? 
He's putting rules in place to protect us, to guard us, to show us how to live, to keep us safe. God's doing the same thing. And when we break those rules, as children or as adults or whomever it is, all we're doing is we're hurting ourselves. God doesn't put rules in place to benefit him. He puts rules in place for us. He gives us guidelines for how to live so we can be good followers of him. And when we break them, we harm ourselves. And that's the real damage. I want to take some time this morning, and I want to look through just three rules that God has given us and how our pride helps us distort those so we do them anyways. So the first rule is God tells us don't steal. Now, I know everyone in this room just thought, I don't steal anything. If you're stealing your neighbor's Wi-Fi, if you're using someone's Comcast account without paying for it and you have their password and you shouldn't be, things like that are how we steal in modern America for the most part. People steal from stores. That's not necessarily not a thing. But we also steal by using things that we haven't paid for that we don't deserve. And when we do that, we're stealing. But our pride says, we should have that. I deserve that. I need that. You know, no one's going to get hurt. It's no big deal. It's not a problem. And we lie to ourselves. But can you see the pride? We're being denied something good that we want. And so we will find any way to justify it and take it because we deserve it, because it's something we need to have. And what's the consequence of that? You might lose your friend that you're stealing the internet from. You might have to pay a fine to somebody because you have been stealing. You might have to go to jail. And worse, if you continue doing that over time, you're eroding your character, you're eroding your uh, spiritual maturity because you're choosing to live in sin. You're not walking towards God. You're walking away from him. It seems small, but it has an effect on us. Let's try another example. God says, don't lie. Our pride says, I don't want people to know I did something or didn't do something, and so I'll make something up so they don't know. It's a little white lie. It's not going to hurt anybody, right? It's no big deal. But when we're lying, we're trying to protect the most important person in the world to us. Guess who that is? It's us. We are the most important person to ourselves. We may not say that out loud, but that's what we're thinking. And we decide the truth is too harmful. I can't deal with it. I don't want people to know. They'll think less of me. I can't do this. They won't forgive me. So our pride tells us distort reality. Make something up. Just change it. No one's going to know. It's a white lie. It's not a big deal. And what's the consequence of that decision? What's the consequence of listening to your pride there? Probably eventually that's going to come out. People aren't going to trust you. You might get punished for something that you've done. If you've lied at work, you might have some kind of consequence. And worse, if it doesn't come out, you're going to have to keep lying to maintain the original lie, and that will eat away at you inside. It's like a cancer inside of you, eating away at you all the time until eventually it comes out. It has consequences. My last example, don't commit adultery. Our pride says, it's too good not to do it. It's too good not to have sex before marriage. It's too good not to be unfaithful in marriage because I want to be with other people. It's too good. Or, you know, even better, the rules are outdated. Culture screams us at us. We have advanced as a society, and we know better now. Can you see the arrogance that we as a people, as human beings, could progress beyond the Almighty God who created us and created everything? That's pride. And what's the consequence of that pride? Divorce rates, over 50% in this country. Teen pregnancies, single parents, on the rise, exponentially. People who can't even enjoy sex anymore because they have distorted it and ruined it by misusing it over and over and over and over again. There are consequences for these decisions. These are just a few examples, but do you see the pattern? Do you see the consequences? It doesn't matter what the sin is. It's always our pride. It's always that same root that's acting to protect ourselves to get ourselves something that we want, to impose our will on something, or to say to God, your rules don't apply to me. 
I know better. I know what I'm doing. And we tell ourselves that we deserve, you know, fill in the blank. But why do we tell ourselves that? Why, why do we think that we deserve that? What's so good about us as a people that we deserve to get whatever we want? Fair question, right? Or we say, God is trying to deny us something good. But is he? What makes us think that we know better than God who created us, that we know what we need? What makes us think that I could possibly know better what I should have and what I should do? What makes me so wise that I should know that? Or, you know, the last thing we say sometimes is, if we don't do it, bad things are going to happen to me. And as humans, we hate it when any kind of negative consequence or bad thing happens to us, and we will do anything to avoid it. So much so that we will do something to hurt somebody else so that we avoid being hurt. Because at the end of the day, we tell ourselves we're more valuable than that person. You probably don't say that out loud, but in your heart, that's what you're saying when you do that. You're saying that I am worth it. Your pride is saying I am better, therefore I should be protected. But we give in to that same temptation. It doesn't matter, though, how we justify it. It doesn't matter how our pride tells us it. At the end of the day, we still have the consequences of that sin. No matter what. The Bible says we reap what we sow. And when we're sowing sin and pride, we reap destruction. We reap death. The Bible says the wages of sin, what you're earning when you sin and give into pride, the wages of sin is death. There are consequences for it. Now you heard me mention a few examples of a few sins and a few consequences that go with them. That list is enormous. I could spend a hundred years and not go through the list of all the sins and all the consequences for them because they are quite large. But all of those consequences, though they're real and painful to us, they are nothing compared to the final consequence that waits us at the end of our lives. Every sin that we commit, every single one, deserves separation from God. Look at Adam and Eve. They committed one sin, one act of pride, and God cast them out of the garden immediately, no hesitation. They are sent away from his presence. The Bible says we have all sinned, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is good, not even one. None of us are righteous. We have all sinned. We don't deserve good things that we tell ourselves we do. We deserve punishment because we're all proud and sinful. And the punishment we receive is because of our pride. Our pride is the root. It's driving these sins, and so it brings punishment upon us because we tell God, we know better. I don't care that you said I'm not supposed to do this. I'm going to go do it anyways. And then there's consequence for that. Now, imagine how hard, just think through your life, all the hard things that have happened, all the bad things, the struggles, the pain, the disease, the death, the despair. Now imagine that times a billion stretch into infinity. That's the punishment that waits. That's separation from God. Every awful thing pales in comparison to separation from God forever. And that's what awaits for us at the end of our lives if we continue to walk in pride. Pride is steering you every day to walk towards that end. God is begging you to turn back, but pride is walking us that direction. And when you listen to it, that's where you're going. That's a scary thing. That's not good. But there's hope, right? There's hope for us. The story doesn't just end. Genesis 3 doesn't just stop and the Bible's over. There's more to it. So I want to keep reading in Genesis 3. I want to start back up at verse 14. It says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above the livestock and the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly all the days of your... So you will crawl on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours. 
He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Did you see it? Did you see the hope? God promises in this passage that an offspring, a descendant from Adam and Eve is coming that's going to set things right. In this story, this passage happens right before verses 16 and 17 where Adam and Eve get punished. Before the punishment comes for them, before the separation from God happens, God gives hope. Hope comes first because God has a plan in place for us. He has a way to redeem it. And he brings punishment. He punishes Satan. He says, the one is coming is going to crush your head. Crushing the head of Satan. Head of sin. The head of pride. Forever. An offspring is going to come that's going to undo everything that Adam and Eve did. All the damage and all the harm to us and to the world. And the amazing news out of all this, friends, is that you and I are a wicked, rebellious, sinful, proud people that God loves anyways. That's amazing news. That is the best, that is the good news that God loved us anyways, even though we are so proud and so wicked. We walk away from him all the time. But he loved us so much that he promised an offspring that he sent, a descendant that would come from Adam and Eve throughout the generations that would redeem us. And that offspring was his own son, Jesus. He sent his very son to save us from ourselves. You and I, we're so trapped in our pride and our sin, we can't get out. You can't do enough good things to make it to heaven. You can't make yourself right with God. You can never be righteous on your own. You can't. We're steeped in sin and pride. We can't get out. But 2,000 years ago, God sent his son Jesus on a crazy rescue mission for us. He sent his son to come and live on this earth, born as a baby, lived his life with us, to come and succeed where Adam and Eve, where you and I fail all the time. He comes and is tempted by the devil himself in the desert and succeeds. Passes every temptation with flying colors, not even a hint of disobedience in him. Go back and listen to David's message from Luke 4 on that temptation. It's fantastic. He comes and he does this. He succeeds. He has victory not only over temptation so that he can relate to us and and get it when we're tempted, and be able to comfort us. But he has success and victory over the devil himself, over sin, death, and pride. Jesus wins. That's good news. That is good news. And not once on this crazy rescue mission did Jesus sin even one time. No pride, no disobedience, nothing. 33 years on this earth, and not even one time did he do that. And at the climax of it all, as he's suffering punishment, He's suffering for our sins. Every sin. Every sin that ever was committed, every sin that ever will be committed, in one moment is brought together on Jesus on the cross. Remember that imagining we did where we imagined all the bad things times a billion forever? Jesus suffered that for every single person in one moment in time. By the way, he was also being brutally murdered in the most terrible fashion that humanity has ever devised in crucifixion. We were doing our worst to him while God was giving him the worst of what we deserve. And that is amazing. And the crazy thing is, Jesus doesn't just die on the cross. Because if he died, he'd be no different than Adam and Eve, right? He'd be dead and the story would be over. He's not dead. God in his love, in his mercy, in his beautiful, beautiful grace, raises Jesus from the dead. So that he's alive today, so that we can have hope. True, real hope. We have hope to escape the pride that twists our desires and destroys our lives. We have hope to escape our sin and the punishment that we deserve 
Every one of us. We have hope to be in God's presence again and never lack anything, ever. We have hope to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven, free from pain and sin and sadness and death and disease and despair forever. Forever. So what do you have to do in your life to overcome your pride, to overcome your sin? It's simple. Surrender. Stop trying to be God. How do you escape punishment? Let go of your pride. Follow Jesus instead. We all have a choice in our lives. The Bible says you cannot serve two masters. You can serve your sin and your pride. You can serve money. You can serve technology. You can serve whatever. Or you can serve God. You can choose to be like Adam and Eve. And you can walk away from God and decide you know best. You have the best plan. You make the right choices. It's all up to you. Or you can say, God, I can't do this. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have all the answers. I will follow you instead. It's a simple choice. But every day, we have to make that choice to let go of our pride and sin. And oftentimes, that's not easy. That's a hard choice to make, but it is a good choice. It is the right choice. You need to trust in someone who has a plan for your life, who has good planned for your life. Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to have all the answers. I promise you, you don't have them. You cannot find them outside of God. No one comes to the Father except through me, says Jesus. I am the way and the truth and the life. Follow him. He is the hope. And most importantly, don't give in to the idea that you know better. You don't. God knows better. Every time we think we know better, it ends badly for us. We don't know better. But if we seek God, if we do what he calls us to do, if we repent and we believe in Jesus, what he calls us to is joy and purpose and hope. Your pride and your sin are liars. They tell you, you'll be great. You'll be like God. You will be in charge. But friends, all they get you to is destruction, death, despair, and separation from God forever. That is what they walk you towards. That is a dirty, dirty lie. And we believe it. We give in to that. That is a dirty lie. But if we humble ourselves, if we say we're not good enough, if we surrender to the Almighty God and say, I want to follow you, I want to live my life for you, I, I let go of my pride and my sin, if we do that, Jesus promises to never leave us and never forsake us. He promises to take us to a place that we can't even imagine how good it is. To be in paradise with him forever, never needing or hurting or wanting again. Trust in Jesus. Ask him to forgive you for your pride and your sin. Choose to follow him. For some of you, God is calling you to surrender your life to Jesus for the first time today. To let go of your pride. To submit to God. To admit that you can't be good enough on your own. To believe in faith for the first time that he died for you and for your sins. And that he lives and he loves you. If that's you today, Come find me after the service. I'd love to talk and pray with you. Talk to one of the renovation staff or the prayer team. Somebody, talk. Tell somebody that's the where you're at because that's awesome. That's amazing. That's grace. For many other of you in your room, today you're going to have to face your pride. Maybe for the first time. And you have to start living a life of humility and trust and surrender to God. We have to do that. As Christians, that's what we're called to do. And as this week goes on, your pride is going to rise up a lot. And it's going to say, you know better. Just do it. It's okay. It doesn't matter. It's not going to hurt anybody. Be prepared to say, no pride. You are a liar. 
I'm going to follow God's way. Because every time, God's way is right. Sometimes it's hard, but it's good, and it's right, and I'm going to follow him instead. And friends, I want to remind you that God loves you so much, and he will never lead you astray. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you for your love. I thank you that you're with us all the time, that you're good and gracious, that you love us, that you're sending your son, that he's here, that he came on a crazy rescue mission to save us. I just pray that you'd free us from our pride, that you'd free us from our sin, that you'd show us where pride has taken over in our lives, that you'd use us to do mighty things in your name, and that you'd bless us with your presence. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.